0: Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At the same time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: So this is our um, our fourth Sunday in these sixteen verses, and I promise that this doesn't um, forecast how quickly we'll go through the rest of the book. But these verses are so foundational to the story that Mark is telling, and of course, talking about repentance. Uh, on the day that marks the beginning of Lent, is very, uh, uh, it's very timely, and it worked well to kind of stay in this uh, one passage for a number of weeks uh, to kind of get a sense of what, a, what is Mark doing and what do these words mean, because we often hear them differently than those that would have been hearing Mark's gospel read would have heard them in their context. Now, I am just, enough, just old enough to have seen the original Star Wars in the theater. So, uh, number four, not number one, but number four, uh, A New Hope, the original series, the original trilogy, um, and I was only four years old. It was my very first movie, and I think my dad just realized what a cultural event this was. And so he took me as a four-year-old to see my very first movie. Uh, We stood in line. The line was wrapped around the theater. You couldn't buy tickets online and so forth. And I remember standing in this line thinking, what is everyone doing? Why is everyone here? How good could this movie be? And then it The um, screen comes on, we get inside, and the John Williams score blares, and that iconic story crawl goes up into the top of the screen. And then what happens, if anyone is a Star Wars nerd, the very first scene is the Star Destroyer. It's coming in over the screen, and it just, this big triangle just begins to take over the entire screen. And I remember sitting there like it was yesterday, thinking, this is the biggest spaceship I've ever seen. When is this going to end? It just keeps going and keeps going. Well, I never thought we'd get to the end of it, and we had never seen anything like this before. Shortly after that Star Destroyer does come into the full screen, it captures a smaller vessel, and we see Princess Leia speaking bent over to R2-D2. And what does she say? Anyone? Yes. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Now, we don't know it at the time in this movie, but she's ostensibly the leader of this ragtag resistance to the dreaded empire that enforces its will on the far-flung planets across the galaxy. And they have hundreds of these star destroyers and a moon-sized weapon called the Death Star that can actually blow up entire planets. And who is Princess Leia's only hope? It's Obi-Wan Kenobi, an old hermit who lives out by the edge of the Dune Sea and he wears a weird old robe of an old, forgotten, almost forgotten religious order that used to stand up to the empire. He is the only hope against this galactic empire with stormtroopers and star destroyers and Death Stars. He will relaunch this resistance and then in the very first film, die, A martyr's death at the hands of the imperial imperial forces. Now, I've watched this series. I've watched all of them, but particularly the first trilogy. I've watched it straight through many times, like as in starting A New Hope and then watching Empire Strikes Back and watching Return of the Jedi back to back. When you're growing up, you have time for things like that. And I remember one particular weekend doing that, and I got to the end, and I was so disappointed. I was disappointed not only because there were no other movies at that point. We had to look in magazines and so forth to hear about when the next set might come out. But I remember being disappointed because that world didn't exist. I remember just being almost sad because I couldn't, participate in that world. I really wanted to be in this resistance. I wanted to, you know, have this honorable, victorious, powerful life overcoming the forces of darkness and evil. I longed to be part of an unlikely, overmatched resistance guided by an almost religious conviction that something about the way this world is set up is wrong, and it needs to be overturned." Well, this is the type of enthusiasm and also a bit of fear and trepidation that those people that would have heard Mark share this story, that would have heard Jesus, that would have heard John's preaching, that's the kind of excitement and trepidation that they might have had when they heard gospel, when they heard Messiah when they heard kingdom when they heard believe and baptism and repentance you see these are subversive words they're revolutionary words they're dangerous words and often fatal words to latch onto and they're hopeful words these words particularly repent this morning that accompanies us during Lent, it sets the stage for the surprising and unusual tactics of this revolution, that this same Jesus who comes promising liberation from the clutches of a corrupt and sick religious order that's in collusion with the military might of imperial Rome, His tactics How he will lead that revolution is by laying down his life. It's by dying. Back to New Hope, remember in the Death Star towards the end, Obi-Wan is fighting lightsaber with uh, Darth Vader, and Luke Skywalker, who we now know, is looking across this sort of landing area, and he sees Obi-Wan Kenobi basically stop fighting and he holds his lightsaber and Darth Vader strikes him down. This is very strange to Luke as well as painful. But he doesn't hear what Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Darth Vader. Strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. It's a it's a very strange way to go about defeating your enemies sacrificing your own life. You see, only someone that believes that there's more to this world than military might and economic power, more to this world than just simply trying to be stronger than everyone else, only one who believes that there's an alternative world, that there's an alternative system, an alternative reality, would ever say anything like that, that by laying down one's life, It brings in a new world. It brings in revolution. It brings in the new order. Not the first order, the new order. In surrendering his life, or as Jesus terms it, laying down his life for his friends, he mocks those whose hope is in chariots and horses and occupation and forced labor and slavery. And he's saying that there is a different reality, a force, if you will, that operates by different principles. And this is the story that the Bible tells, that Mark wants us to know, to believe that the life of Jesus is in fact rooted in, that this very revolutionary idea of self-sacrifice is both new as it's applied, and lived out in Jesus, but also rooted in something very, very ancient. John the Baptist is introduced by a mashup of three Old Testament passages that take a little pulling apart to figure out why these and why does he stop there. But his larger goal here, Mark's goal, is to introduce the fact that John the Baptist and then later Jesus is coming because of an ancient promise because of the Old Testament, because of the job that these prophets wanted to do and saw as their calling toward Israel, that that's the line that John now is standing in. That's the line that Jesus now is recapitulating and renewing. John calls all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem to repent in verse 5. And he comes, as we've talked about, from the wilderness, wearing strange clothes, wearing a robe, not coming from the central places of power. And he's calling to mind, Mark is, in telling us about John, he's calling to mind a very specific figure in the Old Testament, and that is Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the wilderness who called Israel to turn back, to repent from worshiping the ways of Canaan, to worshiping the gods of violence and money and power and empire. He shows up out of nowhere in the narrative. If you look and read First Kings, you don't get any mention of him, and then First Kings 17, Elijah just pops into the narrative, seemingly out of nowhere. He's a Tishbite. We don't know anything about them. We don't know how he gets access to the royal court of King Ahab. We don't know where he gets this message from Yahweh. He's uncredentialed. He's religiously illegitimate. He's an outsider in the middle of nowhere with impossible odds of calling this nation in thrall to Canaan and its practices back to God, back to Yahweh. With Elijah, just as with John, you see the holy, that which is sacred, has migrated from the traditional places of power and prestige to where? To the margins, to the wilderness, out amongst farm workers and day laborers and slaves, to the unimportant and the left out. That's where God's Spirit is on the move in Elijah and John and now in Jesus. You see, every time in the Old Testament that God's people begin to consolidate trust in buildings and things and people and chariots and horses and temples and weapons, every time they begin to begin to consolidate their trust around those things, God undermines them. He undermines these things and shows them as lacking by anointing instead what is small, what is insignificant, what is unclean, what is uncredentialed, what is powerless, saying that that's where He lives, that that's where His kingdom resides. The kingdom, that other very provocative term that Jesus uses, it's the reign and the rule of God. It's the world as it should be. It's the healed world. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom. But it's politically loaded because what Jesus is saying is that the way things are, are not. They are not healed. They are not God's ways. And so the kingdom comes in to usurp that which is going contrary to Yahweh. This kingdom will be set up not in places of power, not in temples, not in buildings, not in money but in places of lostness and in places of weakness, to shame the accumulations of wealth and religious self-advantage seeking that are going on all around it so that there is a stark difference between what goes on in, in a society, in a family, in a church that is ordered based upon the principles of the kingdom and what the world looks like apart from it. Now, when we hear repent, if we have any background in the church, especially in sort of evangelical America, we think of repent in very individual, very private terms. It's an idea of turning away from individual personal sin, sort of moral misbehavior in our private lives. And certainly, the systemic sin that we see grows out of that private sin Societal, cultural, corporate sin is rooted in our private lives and what we think about and what we love and what we want to see happen, but it says Jesus was baptized into the forgiveness of sins for repentance, and yet Christian tradition, Christian theology has always held that Jesus is the one sinless person, and yet He undergoes this baptism. He takes on this idea of repentance telling us that this word repentance is a bit different than maybe what we expect. Sometimes repentance does, in fact, call for the classical, mostly private disciplines that cultivate this individual self-renewal, the mortification of sin individually, as theologians have called it. And frankly, there is a lot more in all of our lives, including mine, than we could possibly cover in one Lenten season. But repentance, as Mark tells it, it always has a larger focus because Jesus comes proclaiming He comes inaugurating the kingdom or the reign of God that is a healed world in right relationship to Yahweh. And He begins, as we'll soon see in the coming chapters in Mark, really immediately, that He calls His disciples to live outside of the normal means of production, the normal economic ways of life, the normal ways of family life, the normal ways of ordering one's career. He calls them out of it. He calls them to live beyond their personal needs and to set their hearts and their lives on the transformation of the old world into the new. And all of the New Testament metaphors, the for spiritual change refer to processes that are, in general, social and only derivatively individual. Salvation, redemption, justification, sanctification, and yes, repentance. These are communal terms. And in fact, in verse 15, Jesus uses the plural to address this community, to address His church, to address all of His followers together. Repent. The reign of God that Jesus proclaimed was a profoundly social reality. It was extremely public and it was extremely seditious. In announcing it, He was opening up and securing, in fact, not only the means of personal salvation, but of a broken world that is being remade. In announcing this good news, therefore, Jesus is calling individuals not primarily, primarily to personal renewal, but to enlist all of their resources and their gifts and their vocation and their calling in the corporate and the cosmic reordering of reality. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that compelling? Isn't that what we want in our best moments, whether or not we profess faith or not? And as a practical step, He immediately calls His disciples to lead the security of their jobs, their families, to join this new sort of family under God. And so I wonder for us sitting here this morning, particularly if you are part of Intown, town what does this family need to repent of? What parts of the old ways are we still caught up into? caught up in? What are we still complicit in? In what way do we still as a community live by the dictates and the norms of the old world? How is our corporate life together decidedly non-seditious, non-revolutionary, and just ho-hum and comfortable? which may be the reason why we go to the New Testament and the Old Testament, we find private spiritual applications because to think about the larger context is just too much work. To think about empire, to think about revolution, to think about resistance, this is just too big. And so instead we focus on what is ours only, our private devotional life. Well, Lent tells us that Jesus comes laying down his life, not merely as a strategy, not merely as a tactic, not merely so that he can be the sort of prime example of this life of self sacrifice, but that his cross is a counterintuitive flag of victory. His death is, in fact, a triumph. And that in that moment, his life, his love on the cross, it is, in fact, swallowing up everything that is dying and swallowing up death itself, as we, in our best moments, as we move toward acts of kindness, of self-sacrifice, as we move towards choosing acts of love over meanness, as we turn the other cheek, as we choose forgiveness of mercy, as we give up the right of vindication, the right to consume with no limits, the right to step on and over other people, when we make those decisions, and you'll be in a place where you can make those decisions this week, today, don't we make those decisions because we believe at some level that there's a a hidden world, that there's an unseen moral calculus where giving up self-advantage works contrary to the way that we think it would. That giving up self-advantage in this new reality, it actually makes sense because it ultimately leads to our own flourishing, our own happiness, and to the good of the world. You see, Jesus' dying is not merely an example to follow, but it's the gravity of the new world. It's the sediment of the new world. It's the oxygen of the new world. And it's why surrendering our needs to others actually makes sense. It's why dying to self to bring in a whole new world, a whole new reality, is worthy of one's life's work. Because living a life like that, it illustrates what God is like. Jesus coming in the way that He did, coming to lay down His life for His friends, for all of those who would take it up. That tells us what God is like. It tells us that God is merciful, that God is loving, that He is kind, and that He is bent on restoring this, His world from the mess that we've made of it. In Lent, we recognize the darkness of our present world. We name the practices of life individually, and corporately, that keep us and others in darkness. And we remember that Jesus did come to die, not only for the sins of the entire world, but for our very own, for yours and for mine. And we do this ultimately with hope because this season ends in Easter. It ends in resurrection, that which grows out of the new world and inaugurates it. But you see, first friends, and this is our task as we come to this table, as we go through this season, we have to first die to the old world before we can live in the new. We have to sit in the darkness long enough to recognize what is really light. We have to recognize that putting ashes on our heads where it points out our mortality and our finitude is not a curse, but it's a blessing because it helps us trust in the one who is lasting in His love and eternal in His favor for all of us. So let's pray as we come to the table. Father, I pray that You would be with us as we come to partake in these elements, that we would see them not as what they appear to be, that is merely bread and merely wine, but what they really are, that in reality they are instruments of Your grace, and I pray that we would see the world in the same way, that we would see our world, our lives as a thin place where your presence, your love, your spirit breaks in and creates things that are new and creates things that are beautiful. And I pray as we partake of this supper together that you would create newness in each of us, newness in this church, and you would enable us to live by the new reality that your gospel announces. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.